Hey everybody, this is Lee here. You're about to listen to the second installment, the second and final installment of my conversation with Time and Klein about critical race theory and the church. I hope this has been helpful, enlightening, maybe even thought-provoking for uh, for all of you. And um, please uh, check the end of the episode for our contact points because we'd love to have a conversation about this if uh, you have questions or comments for us. So thank you again for listening and enjoy the episode. Yeah, thank you for tuning in. It's more than a podcast. Inexhaustible episodes, God's vast. Glorify Him as we broadcast the Lord's grace and God's wrath. More serious than a bomb blast. Full disclosure inside the title. No surprises, simply put, guys with Bibles. Yeah, just some regular reborn, reformed cats. If it's in the Bible, then they're gonna speak on that. Cause the scripture is the final word. Okay. Competing ideas, quite absurd. Of this, you can be quite assured. Yeah. We were lost in the dark. Of night immersed in sin, but then the light emerged. It was the Son of God, divine Christ, that shines light. The word in Genesis that assigned life in hindsight and was revealed through the prophets and apostles. We magnify and expound on the power of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. Listening guys with Bibles, studying scripture, discussing doctrine. All right, so um, I'm glad you mentioned some of these other topics as well. Uh, first thing, um, uh, Resolution 9 makes no sense to me because, as you outlined, this theory is so um, results from uh, Marxism, which was an expressly atheistic, I would even say anti-religious uh, movement, idea, philosophy, whatever whatever you want to call it i don't see how you could how you could equally yoke the ministry of jesus christ with a worldly theory that is expressly opposed to the existence of christianity i don't i don't mm-hmm. know how you how you square that yeah yeah they i mean i i suppose that was part of the um the reason for the way the resolution nine is written, which is, as I said, I think is, uh, doesn't give the full picture and presents, uh, critical race theory in particular. That's what it's about. Not just critical theory generally, but critical race theory as fairly, um, tame in some ways. And just kind of this academic, you know, uh, tool that certain people can pick up and, and put back down at will. Um, but as I've, I've said, I think it's a, constitutes a worldview and and many of the assumptions that are necessary to do a critical social theory at all are um, antithetical to to christian convictions about uh life about society um for instance i i see in um it you know the the final tenet of critical theory that i gave which is liberation um it necessarily assumes a uh a Marxist anthropology, I think distinctly so. So, you know, in, in Marx's paradigm, history is kind of the story of the humanization of man through labor, right? That's how he comes to his full uh, unified self, his full essence. Um, and whoever controls then the means of production, the kind of technology for labor, uh, in a real way for him, controls humanization and reality itself. Um, and f- in that you can you can tell that human nature for Marx is um, 
both negotiable and uh, always in a state of becoming and its ultimate fulfillment is in realization, self-realization. Um, and so that, that same kind of anthropology is certainly present in various critical theory disciplines. You certainly see it in um, things, things like uh, Paolo Freire is a famous um, critical pedagogist. His, his book, the pedagogy, the oppressed is, is very famous and influential. Um, and he talks about, uh, these things in the same same way the the liberation of the oppressed is their full humanization um by you know i i guess seizing control of, of the cultural means of production if you will and freeing themselves from these arbitrary um constraints that society puts upon them so that entire view of of uh which has an eschatological flair to it as well mm-hmm. is uh is a totally different narrative from what christianity would both describe as man's real problem in the world. Why is he not at one with himself? Um, and as well as the solution and the, and the final end game. I mean, all of those are very different in that uh, to believe that, that political and cultural liberation um, is, is the goal. You have to, ins- to some extent, I mean, we can all be inconsistent in our thought, but begin to adopt some of those, what I see as, as fundamentally Marxist anthropological assumptions so that's just one area, you know, of, of if you're going to deal in critical theories, you're going to, to have to deal with some of that. And I'm not sure how a Christian uh, reconciles his own uh, anthropology to that. And that's that's why in the Founders article that I wrote, which is now in their, their book, By What Standard, um, I, I focus on anthropology because I think it's the, the neglected area in this and, and is, uh, holds a lot of the keys for why people are thinking badly um, about critical theory um, is, is somewhat because they don't have a pre-existing view of man and society that is, is functional. Um, so that I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the reconciling the two, I think, is an impossible move. Uh, I don't think I think both Christianity and, and critical theories demand your full attention and, and acquiescence in all of their assumptions. I think they're holistic worldviews and. It's kind of apologetics 101 that you can't hold two diametrically opposed worldviews at the same time. <laughs> right. You can't serve both God and money, that kind of a, yeah. of a scenario. Yeah, that, right. Can't have a, a foot in each boat. I mean, and we would say that, of course, with, with any other thing that we deem a competing religion. You, you mm, can't be a, right. Mus- a Muslim and a Christian at the same time. So from the anthropological side, it, it is interesting, you know, as as reformed believers mm. you know we our our view of of man's nature is probably the most sharply contrasted with with uh, the marxist angle uh I, yeah. there are some yeah. some armenians that are that are a little a little more um a little more aligned with that marxist idea of man can be good or bad it just depends on what he mm-hmm. does or what his motivations mm-hmm. are but it's so that's why it seems so strange to me that this has snuck in into historically and presently reformed denominations. I'm assuming it has yeah. to be done pretty sneakily or uh, subtly. Um, what are some mm-hmm. of the ways that you've seen this this theory starting to creep into um, yeah. the organization of churches or of denominations mm-hmm. or maybe even individual believers? Where where are yeah. those uh, weak points that it begins to infiltrate? Yeah, well, I, I will throw out, you know, it's like a, a, I guess, a necessary caveat at the outset. Um, 
you know, I, I think most of the, the Christians that are, you know, real Christians, especially reformed ones, um, none of whom, because they're messing around with critical race theory, do I, do I question the salvation of, I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying mm, that about right. them. Um, we all have, um, thankfully our salvation is not dependent on our total, um, orthodoxy and, and theological consistency at all times. So I'm, we can all get into, you know, make, uh, make theoretical and uh, theological mistakes, but um, that doesn't mean it's not problematic or wrong or, or incorrect. Um, and I do think that most of the, the Christians who are getting into this, um, it, it's no coincidence that, the, that critical race theory is the most in play, um, because I, I think they are well, most of them are well-meaning or, or have good intentions by and large, um, because they are trying to deal with an issue that um, is, is real in our history, and at, at present, the culture is demanding everyone have an answer to. Um, and I think the people who engage with critical race theory positively um, have, have the belief that their own theology is somehow inept to address some of these questions. It has not done a, a sufficient job in uh, in doing that in the past, so they're looking for other um, help to 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 help them walk through some of this. Now, of course, I would disagree with that, but I th the point is, I think much of this comes from a a from well-meaning people that are trying to um, to deal with something that is a, a real and live issue that's um, pressing at the at the moment. But the the way you'll see some of this manifest this this type of thinking once you. I mean, once you get into a little bit of it and start adopting some of these basic assumptions, um, even in your language, even the way you choose to talk about something like racism, if you adopt the new definition of, of racism, which as I mentioned is, um, is not about your individual animus towards someone else, uh, it certainly would be no less than that, but that's not um, essential anymore. You can have racism without active individual racists because racism is now predicated on uh, the assumption that there's racist institutions that uh, will, hmm. will continue to reproduce themselves unless you do something about it. And so racism is now your complicity in the status quo. You're not fighting them. And that's where the, you know, the, a lot of these ideas are very well packaged, such as the idea of anti-racism, which is Ibram X. Kendi's idea. He's oh, probably yeah. the most famous public intellectual right now. Um, his book is a bestseller. He's all over the place and getting tons of money from, from lots of different donors uh, to do this work. And so his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which is uh, at the top of the Amazon bestseller list, um, you know, will tell you that yep. uh, we may think, I've heard pastors use anti-racism as, as an idea in um, the way that I think logically we would assume uh, it's supposed to mean, right? Which is just against racism. Well, that's not right. the case. That's not what Ibram Kendi means. Uh, he will talk about there is there's only two categories in life. There is racist and there's anti-racist. There's no such thing as simply not being racist. And to be anti-racist is to be actively engaged in dismantling the racist structures and to be promoting anti-racist policies. He's, very, he's constantly talking about policy. Almost everything is in terms of, of legislation and and governmental policy. And so to, to produce a real anti-racist policy, um, that requires accounting for past injustices, past inequity, 
And so a real anti-racist policy is willing to discriminate unto equity. So the the value of anti-discrimination, of us just not having that, is no longer there because the real goal is is equity uh, in society, uh, which they, again, think about through in terms of the the structures of, of everything and um, your outcomes. Um, so equity has now become not just fairness, but essentially, for lack of a better way to put it, a, a qu- absolute equality of outcome. Uh, but you have to then account for historical wrongs. So present discrimination, he will say, is necessary to account for past discrimination. And then you know, future discrimination, yet again in your policies, is necessary to account for what they assume is discrimination currently going on still. So you see how it just, you know, it's, it's perpetual. It doesn't, doesn't stop. Um, but, but anti-racism sounds like a really good idea at first. So I think it's easy for people to get sucked up into it because there's a propaganda nature to all this, which is, you know, presenting it in a way that's hard to deny. Uh, Antifa does the same thing. Who wants to say they're pro-fascist? Well, no one, but we know, and but we know, anti-fascism from Antifa is not that; it's something else. It's the same thing with a lot of these critical race theory terms, um, and so I, I think it's people don't have their guard up. It's easy to get into it, um, and there's certainly uh, regular folks that are not quite realizing what they have their hands on or, or are accepting. Um, and as I've I've talked about before in other podcasts, the uh, Peter Bogosian, who has also done work with James Lindsay, uh, has come up with a great idea um, in in a Wall Street Journal piece of idea laundering, and he talks about it in the Academy. But it's it's a, applicable to the church scenario as well. And his point is that you know you, when regular people are coming into contact with critical theories, they they probably don't quite realize it because the real ideas have been laundered clean through several hmm. kind of revolutions of, of text, right? So you'll have someone reading a book like Wide Awake, Daniel Hill's book that's a, a big-time seller, um, and he's not citing in the footnotes or anything or in the, or in the, the endnotes, uh, you know, critical theorists. He's not citing the Frankfurt School, and he's not citing the big names in critical race theory um, like Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw or Richard Delgado, um, but, but those kinds of books will cite the last person who was talking about this and then if you go there you can find the you know the original citation or maybe it's two or three degrees removed so it's been softened repackaged and and laundered clean to where you you don't quite realize what you're dealing with unless you were already looking for it which most people of course and there's no reason they should are not um so that that's part of the way i think it has gotten in but then there's also the side of it that is where certain leaders, especially in the, the SBC, is I'm most familiar with, um, it is apparent that they do know what they're dealing with and uh, think that it's nevertheless easily reconcilable with their Christianity um, and their pre-existing theological commitments and are choosing to, to um, promote it. Um, now, there are also leaders that I think are not as aware as they should be. And that's another kind of um, mistake on their part or, or malpractice. If, they, they, if you're a leader, especially a denominational leader, you need to know what you're dealing with before you start promoting it and, and become lazy with it. Um, but you will see, and you know, the, the big tell on this is when you see them using these ideas consistently. So it's not just that they accidentally use the word anti-racism wrongly, 
and then you need to tell them that, you know, hey, that's not really what this means. Here's what it means uh, in common parlance now. You can't say that. Um, but they will <laughs> use it consistent, certain ideas consistently with the theorists themselves. So the famous, you know, Matthew Hall uh, interview oh, yeah. he did um, with, I think it was a podcast. I think it was the one called Coffee and Cream, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I believe so. And this this would have been maybe a year or two ago, right? Um, yeah. So he, but he talks about in that conversation, among many other things, but he has the, the now infamous line that he is a racist. He says he's a racist. <laughs> He claims that he will deal with racism his entire life, and he goes on to talk about that in terms that are can only be found in critical race theory, the way he's conceiving of all this. Um, and you know that he's doing that because it would be, uh, you know, it's kind of like the where the federal government is called uh, Princeton University's bluff on them reporting the uh, the systemic racism of their school, which they're doing in terms of the, the way critical race theory thinks about it, but then the federal government has taken it dead serious and said, well, you, you can't be racist and still get federal money. That's against the, the Civil <laughs> Rights Act. So now we're going to investigate you. And it was kind of like, oh, wait, no, we don't mean that. We, sorry, we have to tell, we're, you know, we mean it this other way. Um, but that's kind of what, you know, in the Matthew Hall situation, that's what's going on is it's, well, if you're, claim, if you're admitting to racism, that's a, a pretty big problem. And we might want to look into that, but actually, once you listen to him and know what you're looking for, you realize, well, he's being influenced by this ideology. So he just thinks all of us are racist. I mean, that's why he's admitting it. He is a white person in a white-dominated society, and so therefore he's oppressing other people, the other, the people who are not white. Um, and he he's believing, at least at that time, because I think he's walked back some of those statements. Um, and I hope that that reflects his actual views that he's come around on this. Um, but it, it, he's a perfect illustration of someone who I think um, should have known better, but but didn't. Um, so is not necessarily a bad actor, but is a great example of someone who gets caught up in this um, and then goes around because of their platform, um, you know, kind of dispensing it to, to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then you also have people in the SBC and also at Southern Seminary, like a Curtis Woods or a Jarvis Williams, who I think, based on reading some of their writings, um, are at least, um, at least see some legitimacy for critical race theory analysis and do know exactly what they're doing and are intentionally doing so. I mean, Curtis Woods is one of the authors of, of Resolution 9. He was on the Resolutions Committee. Um, and they they are aware and are are doing so purposefully. So that's even a little you know a little more sticky than someone who's just kind of fallen uh, backwards into this. So those are kind of you you know you have regular people who may not know what they're getting into and it's accidental and they're not they're not have no ill will in all of it. They're trying. They're it's actually the problem is that critical race theory preys upon um, the the good Christian instincts for to pursue justice and fairness and to love your neighbor and to, to have a spirit of impartiality in your relationships, all of those are good. And it, and this, this thing preys upon those and abuses them. And from what I've seen, um, and is very confusing then. Um, so that's, that's some of the ways it's made inroads. Um, if that, hopefully that was fairly cogent, but, um, definitely, that's what I've seen. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I've noticed, I, I want to dial, jump back to what you said, uh, um, discrimination unto equity, right? Was yeah. That, was that yeah. the phrase you used? Mm-hmm. I have, mm-hmm. I've, 
from some things that I've read and seen from different churches from across the country, I've seen that played out, especially in the staff of churches where, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm -hmm. white pastor has been let go in order to um, hire uh, a, uh, some other, a minority ethnicity pastor to take, Mm -hmm. to take his, his place uh, or, Mm -hmm. or the, just the radical reshaping of churches to try to make the membership Mm -hmm. Uh, be more ethnically diverse, or maybe even to match yeah. the same ethnicity breakdown of the community that it's in, and having to develop mm-hmm. new attractional programs to try to get those people in there to to hit the percentages. And it yeah. just it yeah. just seems like that cuts down on the um, on the integrity of the ecclesia. You know, if these are the yeah. called out yeah. ones, if if God Himself mm-hmm. has sent these people to your church, then mm-hmm. I don't see why you need to make quotas uh, as to who can be part of your fellowship. If God's called them to your body of believers, regardless of what they look like, Mm -hmm. they have a soul that you're meant to feed. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's a, uh, whether they realize it or not, it is is functionally a denial of of, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, right? And forming the church uh, the way that God wants it to be formed. Um, and doing that, so it is a denial of that. But it, by trying to take uh, to control those things, and that's very different than if, as a pastor on a case by case basis, you were to, for some reason, realize that there was actual discrimination amongst your your church members or something. That would be different, and you would deal with that mm-hmm. accordingly. But this, the the type of reengineering, social engineering of of churches. Um, and I've seen that from, um, you know, people, uh, leaders in the SBC, like, um, I, I believe it's Jarvis Williams, that there's a video out there of him talking about how um, in his church they construct their small groups to ensure, you know, adequate um, racial representation and oh, wanting Lord. certain small groups to be um, wanting to ensure that the white people in the group were the minority because it's. Uh, you know, uh, not sure wow. exactly his reasoning on that, but I will just point out that in um, critical race theory and critical pedagogy, there is much discussion about how the liberation of the oppressed is actually also the liberation of the oppressor. The The oppressor has no power, no liberatory power um, to free himself from the oppression he's engaged in. So it's up to the 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 oppressed who have the liberate liberatory or emancipatory power through their critical consciousness their wokeness it's up to them to liberate everyone they're actually doing the oppressor a favor as well um so that that is, i mean i don't know where someone like jarvis williams is coming up with that idea but um i'm sure it's from something like wanting to educate you know his church members um but it, it does coincide with some of the some of these critical social theory ideas about what's going on, what the social dynamics are. So I've seen videos like that, you know, and, and other talk about um, it, this This comes into play or has come into play with a seminary curriculum. Uh, you will see talk about uh, at, at various schools, um, certainly at secular colleges, but now Christian schools as well, um, about, you know, how you're going to restructure your curriculum, quote unquote, decolonize the curriculum, which is to replace the white authors with uh, with people of color authors, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because you need to have those perspectives there. Um, and it's a way to to help decolonize the mind uh, of, of Western people um, and all that. So that's that's going on in seminaries as well. So you have it in 
you know, the makeup of your churches, like you're talking about the leadership, the um, you're even down to your small groups and Sunday school classes. Those are in some cases being orchestrated according to this kind of thinking of race. I mean, again, it's not like everyone is taking um, doing a PhD in a, in a cultural studies or something to get all this, but they're getting pieces of it. And it's, they're beginning to talk the way that other people do because uh, this type of language and thinking is, is now out there. Um, and they, and then it's, it's affecting, you know, things in our, um, the way we educate our ministers and leaders. Um, so it's, it's very serious. I mean, it's, I'm, I am not an alarmist. I don't think, you know, the entire Southern Baptist convention is going woke, but there are, mm-hmm. it is influential in the denomination at this point. There are ways in which it's made inroads for, for various reasons and by various people, but, um, it is a live issue. That's, that's for sure. In your estimation, um, how do how do Christians, individual Christians, um, churches, denominations—I mean, however high up you want to go—how do we resist the temptation to fall into this uh, yeah. into this idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think resistance to it and being proactive is key because I I spoke at a, a church earlier this summer, and the question in various forms, it was just kind of the same question over and over was, uh, you know, I have a friend who I've, because of social media, I see what they, you know, their activity and I can tell that they are deep into, um, you know, this way of thinking about social justice and all this stuff. What do I do to pull them out of it? And I I don't have a good answer because (laughs) I haven't seen great. I have seen, um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Timothy Brindle. He, um, Oh yeah. Uh, oh, also man. went to Westminster. He's solid on this topic. He is, and he he had a testimonial on his website the other day of where he was at least flirting with this kind of thinking years ago, and and came away from it. So I mean, that was a that's a success story. That's mm-hmm. a, one you can put on the infomercial. But it's I don't <laughs> see many of those. Um, and as I've heard, if you're familiar with with Neil Shinby, we'll often talk about mm-hmm. you know his kind of purpose for getting interested in all this is he was seeing his friends. Um, get into social justice, which I think at that time he didn't think much of. And then in a couple of years, they would be atheists. And so it was kind of like, well, oh, what's wow. going on? And it's like, well, they're, they're getting into a, an ideology. It's not just that they're changing a political view, uh, you know, which you can talk about, but mm-hmm. the, they are adopting an entire new worldview. So um, I don't, you know, the, the key is to, at the outset, try to be proactive, especially for people who are trying to shepherd their flock through this. Um, and I, as I always say, and I've said in various things I've written, you know, I think it's, it's key for leaders to take it upon themselves to try to, um, get up to, to some speed on this, right? Because it is, it is out there now and you need to, um, be able to be watchful for it as it comes into your church and how people talk about things, how issues are discussed and, um, how they th- start thinking about them. So you need to know what to look for, but it's certainly not required that every pastor and certainly not every church member become an expert on critical race theory overnight. Um, what is required is what's always been required, which is faithful uh, teaching of the deposit of truth that's been entrusted to us. Um, and I think it now more than ever, it's important to affirm uh, you know, historical orthodoxy as represented in our historic confessions and to be um, 
you know, rigid in, in doing so, so that there, you don't approach new ideas as a blank slate, but you, um, you know, you come to something like a, an alternative Marxist, Marxist kind of anthropology, and you already know what the chief end of man is, right? So, that, <laughs> so there's all, should already be a, a red flag. Um, I think that, I mean, that's the key because, um, that way you can withstand anything, but it, because of how big of an issue this is and how influential it's become, um, you, I do think pastors, especially and any interested in able, um, lay readers, you know, husbands and, and, um, wives trying to, you know, make sure their kids don't get indoctrinated at school, um, through things like, you know, the 1619 project, which is being implemented, Oh, yeah. um, in primary schools across the country, I'm, I'm reading Rod Dreher's new book uh, now, which I highly recommend. Um, but he, uh, I had not seen this stat before, but just read it the other day that it's, you know, been in, um, I, I think, you know, almost 5,000 different, uh, different schools at this point across the country. So it's not just like a few guinea pig schools. It's, it's really getting out there and the Pulitzer Center is pushing this. And that is, uh, I mean, the 1619 Project is a perfect example of, of mounting a counter-hegemony. You're going to challenge the historical narrative in order that you can overthrow those predominant ideas and, and assert a, 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 you know, a different way of thinking about it. You problematize the existing ideas so that you can then be liberated from those constraints. I mean, they, that is a perfect example of how that works, fighting those cultural and historical battles um, over the the way we think of ourselves and our and our country and our uh, everything else, so you know, parents need to also be aware of this because um, the critical social theorists, especially those of critical pedagogy, um, obviously are are very interested in education. They see that as a, a primary way that the, um, the oppressive thoughts, oppressive ways of knowing, are um, perpetuated through the the generations. Uh, you know, Robin DiAngelo, the author of White Fragility, which is a book many people will have read That's at everywhere. this point. Um, it's everywhere. Just her and, you know, Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist are, without a doubt, mm-hmm. the most popular books. And those they're both being paid an exorbitant amount of money uh, to give speeches about this all over the place. Um, but but she will talk about in, in her other book, um, is, is Everyone Really Equal, um, I think is where, where this line comes from, where she talks about um, in, in her estimation, kids as young as three or four are already being indoctrinated in whiteness, you know, which is the, the kind of social capital you receive from being white in a white supremacist society. So they're already learning to benefit from it and think this way. So therefore, I mean, the implication is you have to start unteaching them at three or four. That's the idea. I mean, so they're, wow. they're very interested in education. Um, her original a white fragility article before the book was published in the international journal of critical pedagogy. So it's all for educators, you know, to know she considers hmm. herself an anti-racist educator. Um, so especially as kids go off to college. So it's, it is important for people to get acquainted with some of this um, basic way of thinking. I think you can become uh, sufficiently acquainted with it within a, a fairly short amount of time. I, uh, some of the, if you really want to dive deep, that, that takes longer, but I think you can, people can, are capable of getting a handle on it. Um, but the main thing is always to come back to reinforcing, um, the, the doctrine that we, uh, we believe in and reinforcing it, um, 
as as deep as we can and as uh, you know intricately as we can, so that it touches every bit of uh, of our thinking, um, including our social thought, which is where this this is most relevant. Sure, sure. Okay, so um, as as we start to as we start to land this plane here, um, mm. let me. I'm going to put a statement out here. And um, maybe if you would like to comment on it, maybe correct me if mm-hmm. I've gone wrong or, mm-hmm. or offer your own just as sort of a, a final summary. So mm-hmm. in our conversation, it, it seems to me that um, I know that as humans created in the image of God, we know there are things that are objectively right and objectively wrong. But in mm-hmm. our fallen state as sinners, we tend to twist those things and begin to use them for our own sinful good. So Mm. I think people know that people have hurt other people for a very long time. And we know that Mm. that's wrong. And we know that uh, we need to see reconciliation. That's what we er That's what we're urgently seeking. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I think that's, that might be part of the the aim of, of why this uh, uh, ideology has even uh, begun is is an attempt mm. to right wrongs, um, yeah. albeit in a in a sinful way. So mm. to me, it seems that the the only true antidote to this kind of idea is to promote true reconciliation, which we know from mm-hmm. Scripture is the gospel. Um, mm-hmm. We know that uh, Christ has broken down all of the dividing walls, mm-hmm. and in Him, in salvation in Him, and being identified with Him the dividing walls that the world likes to put between us fall down mm-hmm. and we become a new family, uh, the family of God, the church, um, the called out ones. Uh, this seems to me the only way to achieve the reconciliation that we all truly wish to uh, to see accomplished. And it's not only reconciling us with each other, but most importantly, it's reconciling us with our creator who uh, who sent who who uh, sent uh, his son Christ to to live a perfect life and to die the death we should have died, and forgives our sins, wipes them away, and when we realize we have been forgiven of the most heinous sin, which R.C. Sproul called cosmic treason against the holy mm-hmm. God, once mm-hmm. we've been forgiven of that enormous sin, we we find ourselves able to forgive each other for the sins that we've committed against each other as well. So to me, yeah. I would think that the only way we could truly combat this idea would be in, in the, the advancement and spread of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, what it's, it's exactly the case that, uh, you know, we, we certainly can be uh, sympathetic to, uh, to even Marx himself. I mean, the, the where he's, uh, the context in which he's trying to grapple with uh, social inequality and uh, you know, terrible labor conditions and all of these things is something like like none of us have ever experienced in you know late nineteenth century industrializing Europe uh, was not a great place to be a worker <laughs> at that time, uh, no <laughs> doubt about it. Um, and, and similarly, the the Frankfurt School uh, theorists were theorizing in the aftermath of one of the most violent conflicts in history and trying to figure out how this was possible. I mean, they, you can read a lot of their writings and and realize that they are, they just can't make sense of someone like Adolf Hitler 
uh, garnering so much power, um, especially from support from from the populace. So, so it's a uh, and the, and of course, many of the Frankfurt schoolers were Jews themselves. They had to flee the country during World War II um, and, and spent time in Geneva and in America. So they, all of them are dealing with horrific atrocities and, and pain and suffering, but they're, they're dealing with the ramifications and effects of sin in a sinful way. And it's no coincidence that it all create, in fact, uh, results in greater division and a compounding of the uh, the problem so as as awful as uh, adolf hitler was in uh, nazi germany i mean what communism was able to accomplish over a long period of time he could have only dreamed of in terms of body count hmm. so i mean you you have someone you know who's, who's trying to right uh, the wrongs of of uh, you know certain social dynamics and that he's seeing in his life and he ends up through his theories by extension uh, you know, creating more suffering. And then the, the guys at the Frankfurt School are presenting something that's even more divisive and compound. In fact, you need to push the divisions to the breaking point um, at, in order to bring about social change. So, I mean, people like uh, Robin D'Angelo will talk about, you know, the, con- the racial conflict that's undeniable right now that's, that's reemerged um, is actually a sign of growing pains. It's, it's, it's generally a good thing to have this kind of strife. It shows you that people are, are working on it. So the, all of these theories, by trying to address legitimate, real uh, problems in the world that are all, we know what they're the result of, these, these people don't, uh, actually just compound the issue. So the, the only remedy is to look to uh, the gospel, which is the, the remedy for all of our sin. Um, and it's, it's very disheartening to see Christians, other Christians dismiss that as kind of a Pollyanna view to hold. Um, but I don't know when it hasn't ever always been, uh, the Christian view to hold, um, which is the, the remedy for our sin is the same remedy for the sins we do to each other. Um, you know, so it's, it, it that part is disheartening that I've seen that so summarily dismissed by, uh, certain parties, um, as being, you know, kind of ridiculous, and you need to, to grow up and understand uh, how to how to socially analyze uh, things. Um, but I, I would 100% agree with you. Um, it doesn't mean we can't address and, and talk about social ills, and um, mm-hmm. it, and it doesn't mean you can't come up with practical ways to uh, to help one another and to. And it certainly doesn't mean you, that we should uh, do away with all public policy or uh, anything else we use to try to to limp along through this life and make it uh, slightly endurable. Um, but the, you know, it, it also doesn't mean that those are the real remedies for the root problem. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that Yeah, Absolutely. We should, um, we, we should be loving our neighbor. Um, we should love God and love our neighbor. I mean, that is the summary of the law. And in ways that we can actually tangibly help, we sh- the church yeah. should be doing so. But we don't yeah. have to sell out to the world in order to to actually do that. So yeah, um, well, and, they, and they deny they also deny that um, you know the, they really try to deny that we have. I mean, I'm not a um, I have no faith in the myth of progress, uh, infinite human progress. But they do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, critical race theorists will deny that that America has made any progress on the matter of race. Which is, which to me seems like a ridiculous idea. 
um, you don't have to deny the, the the crimes that have been committed in order to, to at the same time admit that those have been repudiated and we've made advancements in law and everything else. Um, but something like uh, Derek Bell's idea of interest convergence uh, accounts for all of that. By uh, The theory is that any uh, quote-unquote progress we've made, this is how he explains Brown versus Board of Education, as well as the election of Barack Obama, is that these are just interest convergence for the, the white uh, dominant culture where they see that it actually suits them in the maintenance of their power to give some ground to people of color for a bit and, and kind of throw them off the scent, if you will, so that they can maintain their dominance. So that's, a, I mean, it's just such a resentful worldview uh, in that way to account for any, uh, any good that actually does come of human effort uh, that's measurable good. Um, and you really just feed it back into your conspiracy theory that everything is about race and all human relationships are fine, defined by racial dynamics and so on and so on. Um, and of course, the, uh, the Christian church is uh, generally, um, regardless of denomination, is, is considered especially by post-colonial theorists as complicit in oppression because evangelism is nothing more than, than brainwashing indigenous people with Western ideas. So, I mean, it, it's, it's an incredibly wow. problematic thing for, for Christians um, to get into this. You will see, uh, you know, charts in some of these books where they'll list out, you know, here's the oppressor class and here's the, the concomitant oppressed class. Um, and of course, in the, in, you know, white, uh, black or, or, or other person of color, uh, male, female, you know, in the, in the two columns, but you have, you'll have them every now and then as well of, uh, you know, the non, the non-religious and then Christians, the Christians oppress them or, you know, some other minority religion in Western society, they will plug in there. So, so Christianity is also an oppressor, um, to, wow. to them. Wow. Um, and they would deny the, the good, the measurable goods that Christianity has provided for even those who are or who do not share our faith, um, it, those are really just concealed bits for power. So it's a very arid way to view everything, um, and it's it's shocking for those of us who don't uh, aren't progressives and that we don't have this infinite faith in the uh, the ability of man to progress um, and to get better and better and better. It's funny that we're the ones that will be pointing to the to progress made uh, over and against the the uh, you know the theorist of the new left so it's a, it's a funny uh paradox i guess you could say but uh anyway that is that is uh where where we are at with that uh presently so i think i think christians need to to hold fast to their um understanding of what the what the true remedy for um evils of any kind are and also where their their final judgment lies um, in that I, I couldn't agree more wow um mercy well time and I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this we have just a couple minutes left uh would you mind uh telling the audience where we can find you online read you online or where we can purchase uh by what standard yeah so the uh the by what standard book i think they just started a second printing of that it was out of stock for a while um is that founders um dot org and um founder site of founders ministries um you can find me on on twitter um i'm on the it's only social media i'm frequently on 
Um, and then I, I write regularly for Modern Reformation, and, as well as a site called Conciliar Post. Um, and then I write frequently for Founders as well, and then in various other places. Um, I also have a, a blog regularly at, a, 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 I have a Patheos blog uh, called The Cantankerous Calvinist, and um, <laughs> so that you can read that as well. Um, so those are my regular spots. And then I, I uh, if you follow my Twitter, you'll see anything else uh, that I, I write or put out. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us tonight and explaining this really uh, um, interesting and uh, depressing topic with us. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. it's, it's really, it's been a delight. Thank you for getting in touch. And um, I'd love to do this again sometime. This is a Absolutely. really great discussion. I truly appreciate your time. You as well. Thank you well, for having and, me uh, Definitely. Appreciate it. And uh, this is Guys with Bibles, and we're out. <laughs>